Good morning. It's good to be gathered with you, church. Our sermon today is going to continue in our series in Mark, starting with chapter 1, with verse 16, and I'm hoping today we'll get through verse 28. So let's turn and read Mark chapter 1, verse 16 to 28. The word of the Lord. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servant and followed him. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority, and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent. And come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region. Of Galilee. Let's take a look at this first paragraph where he's calling them to be fishers of men. This is not where we're going to spend the majority of our time today, but there's a few thoughts about this section, maybe enough even to call it a point. These four verses are a great example of what it looks like to obey the Lord Jesus. A disciple of Christ obeys him immediately. First, let's look at a counter example. We're going to look at Luke chapter 9. You can turn there. We'll go to Luke 9, verse 57 through 62. This is a counter example of the obedience that we're going to see in Mark. With verse 57, Luke 9. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, Follow me. But he said, 
Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord. But let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. We can come up with all kinds of excuses why we should delay obedience to the Lord. That's what this guy in verse 59 is doing when he says, let me first go and bury my father. The language here suggests that his father isn't actually dead yet. Maybe he's sick or maybe he's just getting older. We don't know that. But we do know that as his father's son, the man would have had a duty to his family to ensure that his father's affairs were in order and that the family legacy would continue. So what he's really asking here is to wait until this season of his life is over before he's willing to start following and obeying Christ. And the reason he gave is actually a really good reason. It's one that even seems to be godly, with arguably pure motives. Don't we do that? We come up with what seems like a godly reason to delay obedience when we know that he's calling us to something now. I know I've done that. Haven't you? Maybe he's revealed to you some sin that you know you need to put to death or a relationship that needs to be cut off because it pulls you away from him. Maybe he's called you to preach the gospel to someone and you've avoided it because you don't want to mess up the relationship that you have with them or you're afraid you'll lose their respect for being a Christian. Maybe there's some part of your Christian life where you know what the Bible says about how a Christian is supposed to live And your life is not up to that standard because of some obstacle that you perceive. I'll give you an example to make this real. Some of us have really good jobs. We've got good pay, good benefits, good schedule. These are all material blessings from the Lord. We're providing well for our families. And then one day at work we see our employer adopt some policy that comes from a doctrine of demons. If any of us work for a worldly employer, I'm sure we've seen this. There's an opportunity for us to be truthful and bold and speak against a lie with the truth of the word or share the gospel with our employer and our co-workers. And yet to do so would jeopardize our good pay, our good benefits, our nice schedule, our ability to provide for our families. So we remain silent when we should speak. We keep flying below the radar. Have any of you done this? I know I have. With a good excuse, too. Something really spiritual sounding like, it wouldn't be wise of me to jeopardize my ability to provide for my family. Or I can even use scripture and say something like this, Paul instructs me to live peaceably with all men, so it's better if I don't make waves. Instead, let's look at this example of obedience that we see Back in the text. Verse 16. It says that Simon and Andrew, that's Peter and his brother, they were in the middle of casting their net into the sea. They're actually on the job, in the boat, right in the middle of the action, when he calls them. This wasn't a convenient moment 
where they're just getting ready for the day or prepping the boat or having their coffee and gearing up. No, he came at an inconvenient time where it would be a lot of work for them to pull the nets in, row back to the shore, put the tackle away, go and tell their families, we're thinking about quitting our fisherman job and committing our lives to following this guy that we just met. And then their families would proceed to talk them out of it, right? They didn't say, let us go home and think about it. No, that's not what it says. It says, immediately, they left their nets and followed him. Maybe they didn't even pull the nets back into the boat, right? They just went. They just went. Verse 19, Jesus goes on a little farther to find James and John. They're also fishing. In verse 20, the presence of multiple hired servants suggests that their fishing business was doing pretty well. Maybe they have a sign over their building that says, Zebedee and Sons Commercial Fishery. The Bible doesn't tell us that. But what it does tell us is that they've left their father in the boat right in the middle of the job. The Bible doesn't tell us whether they jumped out of the boat and swam to meet him or if they rowed back to the shore first. We don't know all that. But the Greek word for how they left their father does tell us the attitude with which they left. The King James Version translates this Greek word as forsook. They forsook their father to follow Christ. Another translation uses the word as neglect. In Luke 10, this is the same verb Jesus uses when he tells the parable of the Good Samaritan. When the guy who's traveling gets mugged, it says the robbers left him half dead. That's the type of leaving that's happening here. It's the same word. When Jesus calls these disciples, he made clear what he wanted from them, and they gave up the family business right there on the spot to be obedient to Christ. In favor of obedience to the Lord, they went as far as treating their own father as unimportant. They forsook him and the successful family business that they were soon, in all likelihood, to inherit. In light of obedience to Christ, nothing else could be considered important. Jesus explains what he expects of us in this regard even further in Luke 14, and he uses very strong language. Very strong language. He says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother and brother and sister, and yes, even his own life, he cannot, what? Be my disciple. That's right. The word for hate doesn't mean anything else. It means hate. That's what it means. It means to detest it. To not just want Jesus more than you want the other things, but to want Jesus so much that you actively hate anything that would get in the way of your relationship with him. Anything that could be considered an idol that you would worship instead of the Lord Jesus. So what's the takeaway from this first section? When he calls you, follow immediately. When there's opportunity to obey and serve him, obey immediately. When he shows you sin that has no place in your life, start killing it right away. When he presents opportunity for kingdom work, to speak the truth to someone, 
to share the gospel, to serve him with your giving or your time or your energy, start right now. Don't wait until you've settled your affairs. Don't wait until some season is over. That's arbitrary. Or until you've reached a certain age or some financial milestone or until you've gotten married or until you're a parent or until your parents die or until the relationship you're in isn't fun anymore. There will always be something. There will even be good excuses. Don't wait. Obey him today. What does this look like? Jonathan Edwards wrote a list of resolutions as a young man, and they're worth your consideration. This is an easy list to find if you just go online and search for Jonathan Edwards' resolutions. It'll be one of the first things that comes up. I'll just read a few of them to you. This is number one. Number one, resolved that I will do whatsoever I think to be most to God's glory and my own good, profit, and pleasure in the whole of my duration without any consideration of the time, whether now or never so many myriads of ages hence. Resolved to do whatever I think to be my duty and most for the good and advantage of mankind in general. Resolved to do this, whatever difficulties I meet, how many and how great soever. Here's a few more. Number five, resolved never to lose one moment of time, but improve it the most profitable way I possibly can. Number 52, I frequently hear persons in old age say how they would live. If they were to live their lives over again, resolved that I will live just so as I can think I shall wish I had done, supposing I live to old age. Let's move on to the next section. We're going to spend most of our time here today. Mark 1. I lost my page. Of course I did. Starting with verse 21. And they went to Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. Verse 22 says, He taught them as one who had authority, not as the scribes. Let's look at this Greek word for authority. The word is exousius. Exousius. It means power. But there are a few onion layers on this word that we can pull back to understand it more fully. The first aspect of this authority or this power is that it is compelling. It's the same word used when Jesus later gives the disciples the authority to cast out unclean spirits. Now, when we say compelling today, in context, we actually mean that we heard someone make an appeal and it made us want to do something. But that's not actually what compelling means. It means that it compels you. It has to be obeyed. It's not optional. Don't think of this like your boss having authority over you. That's a revocable authority, right? Your boss can tell you what to do, and you have to do it. Because they're your boss, and you don't want to get fired. And you want to stay employed, and you want to keep making money. But if you don't like your boss's authority, what do you do? You quit. You quit your job, and you're no longer under their authority. You can only be voluntarily compelled by your boss. This isn't like that. 
It's more like gravity. Is it optional for you to obey gravity? How does the old adage go? What goes up? That's right. Must come down. There's an inherent quality in this authority that compels you not optionally to hear it and obey it. Where does it get this power from? Let's peel back another layer. There's an inherent truthfulness to this authority. Keep thinking about the example of gravity again. Is gravity ever not true, or is it universally true? Is there ever a time and place where the law of gravity does not apply? Does water ever flow uphill on its own? Another example, what about basic math? Is there ever a time where 2 plus 2 does not equal 4? Or is it always true, always true, that 2 plus 2 will equal 4? Does this ever happen to you? You hear something that you just know is true. You just know it. The last time I was up here, we talked about Romans 1, just briefly, which says that what's true about God is made plain through natural revelation. All people have a sense of what is true, and they know the truth when they hear it. When Jesus spoke with authority, the people hearing it knew that it was true. It didn't have to be proven. They knew it was true. Let's peel back another layer of the word authority. Contained within the word authority is also the right of the person exercising it, or in this case, the right of the person doing the teaching. Why does Jesus have the right to teach what's true about God and the kingdom of heaven? We could talk about that all day, but the short answer is this. It's because he is grounding what he is teaching in the word of God. He's grounding what he's teaching in the word of God. And John chapter 1 tells us that Jesus is the word of God. So he's grounding the teaching in the word and in himself. Now you're saying, this is getting a little bit heady for me. Trust me when I say me too. So the scripture helps us to understand what it means by contrasting it against the scribes and the Pharisees' teaching. Verse 22 says, he taught them as one who had authority, not as the scribes. So let's dig into that. Why don't the people find the teaching of the scribes to have authority? There's two reasons, and they're tied really closely together. The first reason is that much of what the scribes and Pharisees taught relied on their tradition rather than on God's word. It relied on their tradition rather than on God's word. The scribes and Pharisees did not understand that the power was in God's word and not in their handling of it, not in the person or the man that's teaching it. They thought that themselves and their traditions was where the power lived. The second reason was their hypocrisy. Let's go to Matthew 23. Jesus has something to say about both of these. This is what was read to us earlier. We're just going to read Matthew 23, 1 through 12. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do, for they preach but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger, and they do all their deeds to be seen by others. 
For they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. And they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. But you're not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher and you're all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Generation after generation, the leading religious class, the scribes and Pharisees, would invent rules about how to practice their religion and be a good Jew. They would keep adding layers to what it meant to be a good Jew. Pretty often those rules and practices just happened to coincide with the personal preferences of those religious leaders or things that would benefit them in some way. Rules that were easy to keep for them, but not for the average person. So Jesus spent a little time here describing a big problem. They were making religion hard for the people, and their motivation was to benefit themselves. Now skip down a little bit to verse 23, and we'll read through verse 28. They're still in Matthew 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others, you blind guides straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, and the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. What they taught to the Jews and the example they set by their living focused on an invented outward holiness, but it did not touch their heart. You have to do these specific things and not other these specific things in order to please God and to be a good Jew. Look at the examples Jesus gave specifically. Back in verse 5, they do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad. And their fringes long. Who remembers what a phylactery is? We talked about it a few weeks ago. It's that thing from Deuteronomy 6 where they'd write the law of God on a piece of scroll and then they'd roll it up and then they'd put it in a tiny little box and wear it on their forehead in front of their eyes. Super Orthodox Jews still do this. Jesus said the scribes here did what? They made fancy ones. They made really fancy ones so that their holiness could be seen by others. Does a fancier box on your forehead make you more holy? No. Does it please God more? Of course not. We know that. And yet this attitude from the scribes and Pharisees treated their religion like a competition. They wanted to be the most holy of all the people in the religion. So they rigged it. The poor people all around them who can't afford a fancy box will never attain to their level of holiness. Holiness. 
That's what Jesus means when he says in verse 13, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves, nor allow those who would enter to go in. They made their religion a contest to see who could win at holiness, and then they rigged it in their own favor. He gave another example a little farther down. He said, you're tithing your mint, dill, and cumin, but you've neglected justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Now at that time, in the, in the law, God did require a tithe of anything that the Jews grew from the ground. So we can say that includes spices. So the scribes didn't invent this tithing of spices. But where does the Lord take our focus? What does God want from us? Does he need or want our spices? No. Micah 6.8 tells us, some of you probably have this memorized. What does the Lord require of you? To do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with God. That last thing is faithfulness. Walk humbly with God is faithfulness. So let's bring this together. Hypocrisy undermines authority, doesn't it? It makes authority not true. Don't we even have a sense that hypocrisy takes away the right of the person trying to exercise the authority? So these scribes would wrongfully place the authority in themselves and their traditions, and then they would hypocritically misuse that power to ensure that they would continue to enjoy their status as the upper class by making sure that no common Jew these people meant to be under their spiritual care, could ever attain to their level of holiness. Can you imagine, year after year, generation after generation of Jews watching their religious leaders live lives of outward righteousness, interpreting the law of God through their own traditions, and then keeping the letter of the law but never properly teaching or obeying the spirit of the law? To stand in the street loudly praying long prayers with big impressive vocabularies, but obviously despising the people that they were meant to teach and shepherd. Wouldn't it be hard to see your leaders living lives of hypocrisy and wickedness of the heart? Would that discourage you from believing that there was any truth to what they were teaching you? How awful would it be to attend church for years and see a pastor get up in the pulpit every week preaching fire and brimstone against sin, and then find out later that he harbors a secret fondness for a particular sin. We had that happen here in the South Bay 10 years ago. Not in this church, thankfully. It seems like it happens on TV all the time, and the world loves it, don't they? The world loves it. Or to hear week after week someone preaching about grace and then live a life devoid of tenderness toward others showing little evidence that he understood the grace that had been given. Now, I wrote that sentence before I knew what he was going to come up here and say today. I did, and I'm going off my script right now. But I want to show you that the leaders in this church do have a humility. And you saw evidence of that this morning. You saw an elder come up here and show humility and repentance. These Jews never benefited from that. They never benefited from that. They had never seen that in their lives. So we have something special here. And so I want you to encourage Ed as he works on his graciousness. Please do. 
Let's go back to Jesus in our text in Mark. Jesus' teaching was authoritative, not like the scribes, because he rooted what he was teaching in the word of God and because there was no hypocrisy in him. There's only one way to make sure that your teaching is true, and that's to root it in the word of God. That's why we have the banner up here on the wall. Where is it? It says, Sola Scriptura. That means God, it means the word alone, scripture alone. God's word is the only scripture that you need. It's the only truth that you need. And all other objective truth will never contradict God's word. Any teaching with authority will come from the Bible, the word of God. So here's a simple point. Make God's word and not the traditions of men or any teaching that relies heavily on traditions of men to be the authority in your life. Let's read verse 23, back in Mark 1. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. Let's look at this a little bit. We have an encounter with a demon. I know some of you have been sitting here waiting, saying, when's he going to get to the good part about the demon? Come on, get to the good part. <laughs> there's, there's two other descriptions of this encounter in Matthew and Luke, and you can go study those on your own. But what we want to get, we want to get today what Mark is telling us. Verse 23, immediately there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. The way this is written suggests that the demon went out of his way to go find Jesus. Why would he do that? I'll spoil it for you. It was an attempt to derail the mission, the mission and the message that Jesus had for the people. The demon wanted to distract from the gospel. Verse 24, he says, I know who you are the Holy One of God. The demon recognizes Jesus and he gives him the same title that God has given 29 times in the book of Isaiah. This is the demon loudly making the announcement that Jesus is God and also suggesting that the expected Messiah that the Jews had been waiting for had come. And in the next verse, Jesus rebukes him and says, be silent and come out of him. And then the demon comes out. Why does Jesus tell the demon to be quiet? I had this question until I did this study. I didn't know. Some of you probably still have this question. Why does he do that? He does it lots of other times too, doesn't he? He'll heal someone and then he says, be quiet, don't tell anybody. Doesn't Jesus want people to know who he is? Why does he do that? Some of your study Bibles will refer to this as the messianic secret. The messianic secret. That Jesus wants to keep it a secret that he is actually God and that he is actually the Messiah. Let's try to understand why he wants to keep it a secret. First, we have to understand why did Jesus come? Luke 19 says Jesus came to seek and save the lost. That's right. More specifically, we know that he came to die for sinners. He came to die. Jesus understands that there is a specific plan of salvation and a specific timeline in which he is to die. Other places in the Gospels say 
It's not time for them to know who I am yet. So why is it not time yet? Let's think about what someone does when they want to start a movement. What does a revolutionary political figure do? He draws attention to himself. He tries to become popular. He tries to garner sympathy and momentum for his cause. He wants to be noteworthy, leading the charge against his political opponents. And he wants to usher in a big change. Is that what Jesus came to do at this time in his ministry? Not at all. Isaiah 42, the beginning of the chapter, describes the character of God's servant. And he's talking about Jesus and he says, He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. He's not drawing attention to himself for the specific reason that he does not want to be a popular political figure. It's not time yet for him to draw the ire of the scribes and the Pharisees, who would most certainly feel threatened by him. This scene takes place in the synagogue. There's certainly some scribes nearby. Imagine yourself as the incumbent rabbi, enjoying your life of status. And this guest speaker shows up, and all the people standing around start saying, wow, he's teaching with authority. Not like Rabbi Bob over there, who just tells us the same thing week after week while he enjoys his high lifestyle. And then a demon shows up and goes, hey, I know a secret. He's actually the Messiah. The scribes might not feel threatened by a new teacher who has the power to heal people, but they would definitely feel threatened if that very same teacher claims to be God himself, claims to be the Messiah. So the simple answer is, it's not time for Jesus to claim that yet, because it's not time for him to die yet. This section is a good reminder that we do have an enemy, and that he's crafty. Do you notice that the enemy here does not try to discredit Jesus? He does not try to discredit Jesus. Instead, he tries to derail the plan by saying something true, but outside of God's timing for that truth. During the start of his ministry, Jesus wants to preach the word. He wants to proclaim the kingdom of God, the necessity of spiritual change, and to call his people to repentance. He doesn't want notoriety, popularity, fame, public attention. He doesn't want political enemies that appear because he's drawing attention to himself. Can you start to see why this attempt by the demon to draw attention to Jesus' deity is unwanted at this time? Jesus' response to the demon to silence him and then cast him out of the man accomplishes a few things. One, it keeps the plan on track. And two, it underscores that there is a real power, a real authority in Jesus' teaching. So last, I want to address one little uh, word in verse 27. Let's read verse 27. They were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. They said before that he was teaching with authority. This time, they say it's a new teaching with authority. What's new about it? Let's go get a couple examples of Jesus giving a new teaching that would contrast against the teaching of the scribes and the Pharisees. 
Go to Matthew chapter 5. We'll go to the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to finish today with what was the new teaching. While you turn there, understand that this new teaching, interpreted by God's word, that is spoken with authority and truthfulness and lack of hypocrisy, is new to these Jews because Jesus is addressing the sinful heart rather than the outward appearance. The scribes didn't address the heart. Why not? Because their hearts were just as wicked as the next person's. Jesus discusses not the outward practice of what's considered lawful, according to the teaching of the scribes and Pharisees, but instead he discusses what God is really concerned with, the heart disposition of the person that's in violation of God's law. Let's look at the examples here. Matthew chapter 5. We're going to skip the the Beatitudes and we're going to start with verse 17. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And then with verse 21, you have heard that it was said to those of old. You have heard that it was said to those of old. Who did they hear it from? The scribes. You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Right here, Jesus does put his teaching at odds with the tradition of the scribes. We read up to verse 23. So if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has said something against you. Remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Jesus tells us here in no uncertain terms that murder itself is wrong. Killing someone, yes, is wrong. But that God considers a murderous heart posture to be just as worthy of judgment as the act itself. Harboring bitterness, resentment, anger towards someone, letting it fester into hatred is equal to murder. It's equal to murder. You know, you don't even have to share it with someone else. Have you ever been so mad at someone that you just let your mind tell you everything bad about them that they ever did? There's a reason we call this character assassination. That's an apt term, isn't it? The scribes would certainly say, I've never murdered anyone. We hear that all the time, right? From people that are trying to say why they're, why they're good people and why they'll be able to 
to get into heaven or why they can please God, they say, well, I've never done anything really, really bad. I've never murdered anyone. So the scribes would say this, and yet they harbored murderous hatred of a fellow image bearer in their heart. Or they spread rumors and lies about someone to strengthen their position. In verse 23 and 24, Jesus goes as far as to say, don't even practice your religion externally until you've resolved this internal sin. Your practice of external holiness is meaningless if you're harboring hatred of your brother in your heart. Another example in verse 27 and 28, talking about lust. Let's read, let's read it. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. We've all seen this verse lots of times. Is cheating on your spouse bad? Or, or, or any kind of activity, sexual activity outside of marriage, is it wrong? Yes, it is. It is. It is bad. But what about when you're on the 91, driving back from out of town, and you see a, a gentleman's club billboard, and there's a new girl on it that wasn't there last time you drove by that billboard, and you take a second look. Get real. It's easier to hide, and it might not have the same external consequences, but it's the same sin of the heart. It's the same sin of the heart. Just as an aside, I'll be up front and I'll let you know that this holiness topic is kind of a hobby horse of mine. So God was good to me to let me preach on this. But I, I'm going to say this because anytime I get a chance to say it, I'm going to say it from up here. If you have a pornography issue, it is killing you. Kill sin or it is killing you. If you've got an anger issue, it's killing you. It's the same sin in your heart as if you went and hired an assassin. If you're a Christian but you've got these things going on, find someone to help you. Find someone to help you. Come and talk to your elders. Get help. We have fought these battles too. We want to help. Let's look at Matthew some more. If there was any doubt that he was taking aim specifically at the teaching of the scribes and the Pharisees, skip ahead to Matthew chapter 6, and he specifically calls out the hypocrisy of people who practice external holiness but have unchanged hearts. Let's read it. We're going to read Matthew 6, 1 to 5, and then we're going to skip down uh, to verse 16. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who's in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Now skip down to verse 16. 
And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who is in secret will reward you. Are we getting the point yet? The externals are incidental. Earlier in Matthew 5, in the Beatitudes, Jesus said that this change of heart posture, this change of heart posture is for those who have inherited the kingdom of heaven. Do you know that the kingdom of heaven is a spiritual state, not a physical one? A state of the heart? A state of being and not of doing? Does that make sense now when we read Matthew 23 earlier? By focusing on the externals, but harboring sinful attitudes of their hearts, the scribes actually set an example that would keep people out of the kingdom of heaven. It's a sad thing to see. So we're going to end the sermon today with this. Maybe there's someone here who has practiced our religion for a long time. You've been doing all the right stuff. You get up on Sunday morning. You put on your best tie or you do your makeup really nice. You show up on time. You shake hands and smile. You sing the songs. You give an offering. You listen to the sermon. You sing another song. You're doing all the externals. Maybe you're even doing them well. Setting a good example for your friends, your peers, your children. And maybe week after week or year after year, you get used to these things. And now they're kind of ingrained into your culture, even your identity. Maybe they're even comfortable for you. Maybe they're even effortless because you've had a lot of practice. But in the back of your mind, there's this little tickle that something's not quite right. You read those beginning passages in Matthew 5, the, the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount about what a believer looks like. And when you're reading them, you think to yourself, that doesn't sound like me. You still have an affection for sin. Or maybe you're using your religion as a means to an end to keep your life comfortable because there's a lot of benefits to having a place among God's people. Yeah, there are. Those scribes sure knew that, didn't they? Jesus says those who are truly belong to God have their hearts of stone replaced with soft hearts of flesh. But your heart still feels pretty stony. I have been there. I'm sure a lot of us here today have been there. But if that's still you today, this sermon is not telling you to do better. It's not telling you to do better. You can't work your way out of that position that you're in. There's only one way to get a new heart. There's only one way to get a new heart. You have to want one, and you have to ask him for it. If he's calling you today, be like Peter and Andrew, James and John. Don't wait. Obey immediately. Ask him for a new heart. And may he grant you repentance and a place in the kingdom of God.